Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Arizona River Runners. Just getting started on your own big adventures? Arizona River Runners' three-day Grand Canyon heli, ranch, and raft trip blends authentic western ranch experience with world-class whitewater. Explore secret waterfalls and drift to sleep on the banks of the Colorado River under a blanket of stars. Longer trips are available as well. Let Arizona River Runners take care of the details on your own big adventure. Visit RaftArizona.com. My next guest is an old friend of mine. We met in the bottom of the Grand Canyon running boats. And then through the years, we've done all kinds of movie and film production work together. We've uh, been besties since then doing all kinds of different projects. So Scotty is also uh, the owner-operator of a big uh, livery or uh, private boat supply house. The Saba is providing these private permit holders the transportation and food packs and boats and expertise so that people can safely fulfill their private permits. He's also done a tremendous amount of international boating uh, down in South America and just generally a great and fun guy that can tell a story like nobody else. I'd like to introduce you here to Scotty Davis. our background, it's obviously going to take a couple sessions because <laughs> uh, you can't fit it all in. So I have a couple things I'm interested in hearing about cool. as well as hopefully the people listening to us. But in regards to the search and rescue and the caving, let's start into that as far as your outdoor lust, which I know you have. Yeah, the... the uh The search and rescue taught me all the rock climbing and ropes and kind of all the other search and rescue stuff too. But I had all kinds of mentors that were rock climbers and they were all four wheel, they were into four wheel driving. So I got that mechanics. And then uh, we went caving uh, with the high school uh, hiking club. And my buddy Doug and I were together and we both fell in love with it. And that became our passion. He was a gymnast. And I kind of became a rock climber caver and, uh, we, that was our driving force in our life for many years. And there's two other friends and Sarah, there was mostly four of us that started caving in Arizona, um, started setting the new standard of cave exploration back in the uh, early eighties, late seventies. And we methodically, uh, went all over the state to find caves, talking to cowboys, going on topo maps where all the limestone is, looking for the, you know, the the depth of the limestone as far as if it was a big block or there was depth involved. And and we loved it. That was a fabulous time of my life, uh or in the early twenties, in my early twenties. And and uh right in there, you know, we started coming up the Grand Canyon primarily for caving. And then uh we learned about that river down there. <laughs> well, and just to say, too, you know, we go way back and like uh, I'm lucky to have met Doug and then uh, a couple other other of your old acquaintances, uh, fascinating people, the caving community in general. 
But uh, can you talk a little bit about the early, what's the cave down there? It's the- uh, Oh, maybe Karchner Caverns. Karchner Caverns down there. Yeah, we there was two groups of people that were exploring that cave. And uh, the original uh, two guys, Randy and Gary, were friends of ours and we caved with them. But that became their- sole project. I mean, we had dozens of projects all over the state that we were working on. And that was a spectacular cave, but it became, you know, controversial just because uh, it was so close to the highway that these guys, along with the Karchner family that owned the property, really wanted to preserve it for eternity. And that involved a whole bunch of steps, but Arizona State Parks now, you know, runs it. And, uh, yeah, it was it was pretty wild. A perfect example of some of the caving we did is that uh, it was so secret back in the late 70s and the 80s, early 80s, that we would park five miles away, leave Tucson at about five o'clock in the afternoon, arrive at the parking lot when it got dark and would go commando style for four miles till we hit that entrance and we always came out in the dark so like we come out early morning because we all had jobs so we had to go back to work and so we'd do it like on a wednesday or thursday night but this entrance we uh you had to disguise it because all the cowboys knew about the entrance is a big dirt pit but there's a super muddy section in the cave and when you came out you're all muddy so you could easily look in the pit and go where's all that mud coming from so we would actually uh like a quarter mile away get garbage bags of dirt and all the normal debris in the area and then we would make a rock blockade so you couldn't really see that there was a passageway and then sprinkled over this fresh dirt on our tracks so you couldn't really see and we would use grease wood on the trail like the dirt trail that we would walk we would scrape it behind us and uh it wasn't illegal what we were doing i mean there was many caves all over the state that were on many different land manager uh, pieces of property it wasn't illegal at all it's just that that's kind of how the caving was and still is in arizona it's very secretive well, as it should be, I mean, anybody, like I've only been in a couple of them with you. I'm not necessarily of a build that is prompting being a caver, you know, I mean, but one thing absolutely that I got from you was how delicate the cave is. I mean, it's so vulnerable to high impact and stuff. And I learned yeah. that from you, uh, but uh also, you know, the vastness of untouched caves and the whole mystique. I've always followed caves since I met you. And uh, was the Kirchner Cave on private property? It was on private property. And uh, it was such an interesting story. I mean, they talk about it now. And um, I'm very good friends with Kathy Karchner. Yeah, I recall and, that. Uh, I was just talking to her last week. And they're having the 20th year reunion of... Uh, making Karchner Caverns uh, in November, 20th year reunion that they turned it into a, you know, a commercial cave. So it was a good thing all the way around that needed to happen there. Um, but. Uh, well, that you know, alone is a great story because you were leading edge of something that's now very commonly known about and, you know, managed. Yeah, we were kind of labeled by certain people that were a little bit, 
academic about that whole project as the rebels. And, you know, there was a certain oh, man, bit dude, of rebelness man. in us because we were all over the state. I mean, we were looking at topo maps. I mean, it became just this huge passion and, and, uh, we really enjoyed it. You know, I mean, most of the caves we were exploring were, you know, virgin caves that we were the first people surveying it first steps. And that's, what's cool. Cause you don't really know how far they're going to go or what it, what's around the next corner. And so that was just drove Well, us. Another cool part of that, just for the listener is the detail of, of your drawings and maps of your exploration of the caves and the accuracy of, of, the interior of these caves. Uh, what what was his name? Bodenheimer? Or? Hans Bodenheimer. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it really blew me away when I uh, saw the work you guys were already doing in regards to a serious caver, what went along with that, and seeing a couple of his surveys of interior of caves and stuff. It's a whole it's world a all its own. huge skill set for sure. Let's go to Mexico. Um, you know, it's not something you'd advertise if you're doing river trips and stuff, but I heard a story on the Usamacinta that really needs to be told. And if you're willing to start from the start of the trip, kind of explain what you were doing down there and, uh, you know, just go ahead. <laughs> just go ahead and tell well, us. Well, a little brief lead into all that. Um the Rio Usamacinta is the natural border between Mexico and Guatemala. And it's the largest river in Central America. And at high water, which is in the rainy season, which is in the summer and fall months of the year, uh, it gets 250,000 to 350,000. Oh, I, I didn't realize it had that sort of CFS. And when most of the river runners uh, would run it, it'd be in the dry season, which would be January through April. Mm -hmm. And we were usually on 30 to 50,000. And our company, Save Adventures, um, and we ran a lot of trips on that river, um, probably more than any other outfitter. Um, but there's a couple other very reputable outfitters that were down there. And um, in 1994, uh, the whole region kind of had a huge upheaval and it was called the Zapatista movement. And uh, mostly indigenous Indians, uh, rightly so, complaining about all the uh, lack of money going towards them as well as it was a big land reform issue. And so they picked up guns and uh, a lot of the places in Chiapas are lawless. And that's why we enjoyed it because it was raw wilderness and... Uh, so anyway, uh, concerning that incident, what happened, I think it was uh, April of 96, and it was the last trip that the company had uh, organized, and um, it was a private trip. Private trip meaning that all they did is just rented the equipment from us. And um, we weren't, my, myself and the one and only other guy that was with me at that time was David Kaczynski. Well-known uh, boatman in Grand Canyon. And um, they were all Swiss cavers, uh, friends of mine from caving in Oaxaca. And they had just got done with a huge caving expedition and wanted to take a vacation on the river. And they asked us along and David and I said, well, heck, we don't have anything else to do. So we decided to go along and neither David and I got involved in guiding. We were just passengers so it was like day five 
on river left. So now we have Guatemala on river right, Mexico river left, and a big waterfall comes in. And uh, it's called uh, Rio Butzilha, and everybody stops there. And come to find out, we were being watched, and we were basically being watched by banditos. And um, there's been a long history of guerrilla activity along the Usumacinta, mostly in Guatemala, because all of Guatemala in that region is super remote. There's no towns. It's all super remote, rural and so with the, you know, whatever, I don't even know how long the Civil War has been going on and had been going on in Guatemala, but um, there was Guatemalan guerrillas that would commonly encounter river trips and there was never any incidents, although they had guns, there was never any incidents as far as I know. Um, but nevertheless, when we pulled away from the waterfall, I think we had five or six boats, there was maybe... 15 people on the trip. And uh, as we pulled out of the waterfall and started heading around the corner, um, a band of about five banditos, and they were all dressed up in various uh, types of garb, mostly looking military immigration uniforms. It was an interesting, eclectic group of men. And uh, they demanded that we uh, pulled over. I was happened to be on the front boat and I wasn't rowing. I was just hanging out, told them I couldn't understand what they had said. And, and they said, you have to pull over. And I said, we're not pulling over. And uh, they opened fire on us. And there was uh first boat I was on. There's three of us. And then this David Kaczynski is in a kayak right behind the first boat. And then there's second boat. And then the other four boats or so uh, hadn't really rounded the corner yet. They weren't sure what was going on. And one of my kind of the one of my best friends on the trip, uh, Carlin Myers, he was hanging out on the boat with me. He got hit in the elbow with a bullet and flew off the boat and kind of stayed on the other side of the boat and just kind of drifting with us. And then he swam out ahead. And then at the same time, they opened fire on the second boat. And um, Carlin's uh, partner, now wife, Ursi. Uh, she got shot three times and one in the pinky finger that exploded that one through her right, uh, kind of humorous, uh, entry and exit wound. And then the worst one was in her back right below her upper, uh, rib cage and just disappeared. So that was a, Oh my goodness. Do you know what caliber weapons? They were probably 22. We ended up with a lot of the the bullets. The third guy, uh, Gil Ediger, big time Texas caver, a uh, big, huge, beefy guy, got hit in his knee several different times. Oh my God. So, anyway, we pulled over and they, it, and we didn't have direct communication with their boat and our boat because we were probably like 30 feet away. Um, they were not very well educated and they were all demanding, uh, they wanted money and they wanted things and it was pretty intense, but essentially uh, they asked all the other boats to pull over and I refused. And I said, you have my hands. I, I said, my hands are up. I'm going to take my shirt off. And I had to run down because they you demanded had wounded. that Harlan or not, excuse me, Carlin uh, had 
swam up the shores. I went down and got him and tied my shirt around his elbow. David was dealing with the other boat, yelling at these guys. They were yelling at him. So they ended up under, they all had guns and they ordered two of their helper guys who had guns uh, to come on our boats. And so what we did is we gave them cameras, gave them everything that we thought would be valuable. And they were, again, not very well educated. They did not know how to operate fast tech buckles. They did not know how to open up like 20 mil rocket boxes. They did not know how to, you know, everything on that boat was totally foreign to them. And so I told them I was leaving in 10 minutes. They can have anything they want. We're out of here in 10 minutes. And there was a big discussion about them wanting the other boats to come down. I said, I refuse to have the other boats come down. And uh, this went on for 20 minutes or so. And I realized that the path of least resistance was to get the other boats to come down. Now, see, I, now I'm, I'm all of a sudden making all these decisions and I didn't make a single decision on this trip. Their food, where they were camping, I was just hanging out. And I was thrown into the trip leader now, which was okay, which was fine, but pulled all these guys in and they're all saying, what's going on? What's going on? And I said, just don't say anything. Just follow my directions. And um, right then uh, a helicopter flew over and we don't see a lot of helicopters down there. They're either military or oil, like Pemex uh, oil companies. And they all... Five of them all started freaking out. And uh, this ship, this helicopter was probably a thousand feet high, pretty high. And then it circled around and it came right to the river. And that is, that's a whole other part of of the story. And um, they melted into the jungle. They were running from that ship. And I looked down and my little 50 cow was there and I opened it up. And I pulled out my signal mirror and the sun was directly behind that ship. And I just lit that whole ship up with my signal mirror all the way down the river. And we regrouped in about five seconds and we sent our two kayakers downstream to see if that ship was going to land at a big beach for us. Well, never did. Never saw it again. And so we went downstream about a half a mile did all of our first aid, had to patch some boats. And then the other aspect of it is that we had to get our people out. This is, you know, we didn't have sat phones. It was, you know, no, you we had, didn't have you anything. Had, uh, and damaged uh, so goods, yeah. we, uh, we rode through the two biggest can, not the two biggest, but the, the first biggest Canyon on the whole trip, class three whitewater at night. And we had a system, we were all cavers, so we were comfortable with the dark and I gave them directions on all the rapids and what they're gonna be, but we didn't turn on any lights because we knew we'd blind each other and we didn't communicate unless it was necessary. And we just went through there silently, pretty wild. Yeah, really, I can only imagine. And one of the things I remember is uh, we got to the first little town that we knew about, it was three o'clock in the morning, totally dark. And the bus was just warming up to, it comes into this village at night. And then in the morning it comes out, it's at a village at the end of the road. And so we just hired that bus and uh, four of us went out, got to the nearest town and hired a taxi, went to the clinic. 
uh, clinic couldn't do much. So then we went into plank A. But um, we had three or four interviews with uh, the military. They were kind of just aloof, to tell you the truth, especially since no, no one died. And uh, so anyway, we uh, air evac'd uh, Ursi to Florida uh, from uh, the panhandle of Mexico where we were in Palenque at the time. And uh, she was a, a concert violinist. So, it, and she was a jeweler as well. So that pinky has never really worked right after that. And uh, she, oh. she was, she was a, an amazing woman. And, and as we later learned that she was probably number one or number two in the world, in the caving world, as far as how you rate those people, it's kind of difficult, but nevertheless, she's big time caver, super hardy. And, um, really, uh, there had been that, that was the last river trip that our company ever ran on that river. And, um, there continued to be other outfitters doing trips. And there was another outfitted trip about two days upstream from us. So it wasn't like we were the only people out there. But there have been several, I would say, and I have to count them, I have to think about it, but maybe three, at least three, maybe four other incidents at that exact same place with other river trips that decided that, you know, oh, it's a one-shot deal. Well, these guys kind of live in that area and it's a it's a rugged area it's you know it's it's the international border and uh we didn't really have any incidents for 20 plus years and um it was probably the best trip that ever went down that river as far as the most hardiest expedition people that it could ever happen to yeah and you were lucky for that and it wasn't your commercial trip it was a private i mean there's a lot of things that fall into yeah, there are some fortunate things, but very unfortunate things. I think, you know, oh, yeah, really it drag. tampers with the tourism in that whole area. And, you know, you can't help but think about just the mom and pop stores and the hotels and the travel agencies that exist in those communities around there that cater to all the tourists. I mean, it it, it was a big thing that affected Because the, the word got out. You guys came off with wounded and, oh, exactly. my goodness, I'll bet the the. The word travels fast in places like that, right? It does. And, you know, you can feel sad about or sorry about yourself and your own situation. But, you know, our situation, uh, everybody turned out okay. And it just was the start of the demise of yeah. kind of amazing story. adventure travel in that region. That's a extreme outdoor adventure right there. Oh, boy. And uh, thank you for that, because I know you don't talk about that or the Karchner Caves all that often. And so we feel awesome. good about stories like that coming from these guys that are out there getting the true adventures in life, which I think are the richest things in the world. Adventure. Let's move on towards Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. You, you're hanging out around Grand Canyon. In the process of exploring caves in the Grand Canyon, we really wanted to get down the river so that we could see all the red wall caves that we had heard about, but we knew nothing about them. We were so a good friend of ours, mine in particular, Ronnie Lawson, who worked for Hatch. I was able to drop his name when I was cruising past Hatch one day. Ronnie and Lawson, a beautiful man. He was an awesome person. And uh, 
Anyway, so dropped his name and that got me in there. They had one more trip of the season and they asked me to come along as a unpaid swamper. And I said, absolutely. And so Ronnie Lawson was part of that, huh? Yeah. And uh, so that was 82. That was September of 82. And so that was the last trip of their season. You know, motor season ends on the 15th. And then I fortunately went down with the foreman and the, you know, manager and the, and the, they fortunately asked me back if I wanted to have a job next summer. And well, I said, and I think that's when we met. I remember the first time I laid eyes on Scotty Davis, I went by the old helipad and Hatch had some crazy thing where he had boats harbored across the way from the helipad. And there was this guy that was keeping track and on top of the protection of this equipment for Ted <laughs> That was me. And then the rest is history. But uh, I think that's the first time I ever really registered who Scotty Davis yeah. was. And I asked questions to find out. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, you got your start. Let's go back to the Hatch days back then, because it was more of a, for the listener, Hatch is one of the oldest companies in Grand Canyon. And they had an incredibly and still do a, a old fashioned style and a very individualistic thing that went along with each boatman. Everybody knew who the hatch boatmen were. There was a certain hatch way. Can you give us a little background on the old hatch way? Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe nowadays I'm considered an uh, older veteran hatch boatman since I'm in my sixties, but there was a whole nother vintage and maybe even two vintages before I showed up, but it was truly a boatman's company. And Ted Hatch was an awesome individual, but we had a lot of freedoms. Our, our, our leashes were long. Uh, <laughs> they got choked off when you kind of made the big mishap, but nevertheless. Um, and yeah, it was male dominated, uh, you know, somewhat, it was tough for a woman to get involved in the hatch lineup. Oh yeah. It was tough. And, uh, um, I enjoyed it a lot. You know, I mean, I hung around cavers who are, you know, probably some of the, uh, strangest, most elect, elect, not electric, <laughs> eclectic, eclectic, thank you, group of people. And, uh, then I hung around these river runners. It was just like another version of it. You know, so I really enjoyed myself there. I was learning a lot. Of course, I fell in love with the Grand Canyon and it, you know, became a career. And I would say you were in that transition that I completely understood because I started when all the original outfitters were still running the companies and and uh, there was that old school, and both of us kind of lived through that transition. Like, I was the kid. Everybody was a legend. Everybody was a uh, Don Neff, a uh, Ted Hatch, a uh, Don Hatch, a uh, Jerry Sanderson, a uh, Georgie White. I go, list goes on. Both of us kind of got in there in that transition, and that is the reason you were on that beach keeping an eye on the equipment, you were a low man on the totem pole. Absolutely. Right? It was, it was, I, you know, it was a swamper <laughs> and we took, I think four or five boats in there on a, I think it was four boats. 
And all the crew and the passengers helicoptered out. And the next trip was one of those young president organization trips, you know, where everybody has to make a certain amount of annual income. And so they brought down another three boats uh, from you know, Lee's Ferry. So there is, I don't remember the exact, but it, but it was, they were huge. I actually got yeah. in on one of those. Yeah. Yeah. 150 clients, guys. 150 yeah. clients from helicopter pad down. And so that was a good little learning curve for me as well. And understanding the, and that was the first boat that I got to run as well. As far as I got one of those boats from uh, the helicopter pad down. And that was my first, you know, that what that didn't mean that I got to be a downriver boatman. <laughs> no, but you know those crazy things like that give opportunity to Absolutely. us. That's a, this industry in a nutshell, basically. Yep. But um, unbelievable characters, unreal time. You know, it's the uh, lawless times. Absolutely, there. there wasn't a lot of rules. And uh, you know, I remember so many things about Hatch. Early 70s, they were still running the tail draggers. Uh huh. And I remember 1970 watching a hatch boat go through there with one of those tail draggers. And uh, for the audience, the tail dragger was this crazy, just ad lib frame that went over the back of a 33 foot donut. And uh, so the configuration of a motorboat is a 33-foot donut with side tubes of 22 feet. And all this stuff is uh, surplus bridging pontoon material. So you could drive tanks across the Yangtze or whatever, you know. All the way down the line, the rubber, the boxes were all ammo cans, surplus, Everything but the motor and the frame was basically military surplus. And so there were all kinds of crazy ideas on how to make that work. And it's still very much the same equipment, only they're building it... Purposely. Purposely, kind of after the whole fashion of this surplus equipment. But the tail dragger was one that they figured out pretty early in the game. It wasn't as good of an idea as to what we've developed into. And it was a frame that went over the back of this huge donut. The donut had a full floor on it. And so it was the most difficult thing probably to drive. You're sitting there like a cowboy with a bucking strap, leaning back to get to the outboard motor and... uh off you went and it was a totally different thing back then yeah and you remember they had the at least two rowing stances on the boat as well so the mousetrap it's kind of a combo of either or how you're feeling or making time or don't want to drop the motor in or i want to row it both with the motor and you know there's a handful of combinations of that well and also these things actually had a floor so you'd get hammered in some rapid and these guys had to if they could get to shore have to pull in and spend literally a couple hours bailing out the water inside these things a lot of people forget you know, the the progression of equipment in Grand Canyon. But you and I were lucky enough to see kind of a 
transition. The in-between of that. And I think, I don't know, it's what I've always thought, but I've never seen it in print or, but that's maybe where the term swamper came oh, to play. It definitely is where it came from. Because those big, yeah. you know, donuts that were not self-bailing, it was like you just mentioned, it's a huge task. So swamp, <laughs> the boat is swamp, swamper. Exactly. But, uh, and, you know, uh, both of us kind of have shared a bunch of Grand Canyon together. But to move it forward, it's pretty exciting, you know, being as close as we are watching the progression of your existing company uh, and how that fits in with Grand Canyon. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the commercial allocation in Grand Canyon. I want to talk a little bit about the ceiling we have as far as how many people go through there a year. And uh, what a relevant part of that is the private sector, the private use permits. And you have built a business around providing that side of it. I mean, so you've got the commercial side of it. Can you kind of uh, share a little bit of your ride on that whole private sector? Sure. Um, the system that they had for many years was called the waiting list. And there was a bunch of loopholes within that system. And to make a super long story short, the Park Service needed to revamp that. And they looked at a lot of other rivers and decided that the lottery system for private trip usage. And what that means is that there's no guides that go down on the river. They're not allowed to have guides. Um, so they're on their own. But uh, we're, we're one of four outfitters in town that provides services to those uh, private trips. And uh, in 2005, the Colorado River Management Plan came together and it basically reevaluated the whole Grand Canyon corridor. I mean, it looked at all the archaeo sites. It looked at all the plant diversity. It looked at the trails. It looked at the campsites. It looked at the commercial, the private trips, the site. It just reevaluated everything that's going along in this 300 mile corridor. And um, they decided to offer 40% more allocation to the private uh, visitation. And based on that 40%, there was already two outfitters in town that were quite successful and offering these uh, services to the to the private trips. And we decided to step into the arena uh, in 2005. And then in 2007 is when they implemented that 40% uh, allocation for the privates. Well, and in and, and segue to what Scotty's talking about is the the services or a uh, boat livery, a food pack, shuttle service, uh, uh, everything around that guy that gets that permit and needs all the help or some of the help, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. And, um, you know, there's basically 525 permits every year with the private trip allocation. And um, the way the industry is going now is that most everybody rents the gear and you know uh you guys have been too good it's, it's, well it makes it's a lot more sense it's making do it that way we're fortunate with that and you know a lot of we even have a lot of these outfitters from you know back east and northwest that 
They just want to show up with their personal bags and all the uh, beverages of whatever sort is just ordered beforehand. It comes on the truck and trailer and they go off and have a great time. All the food is done. Everything's done. They have to cook it. They have to do their river trip. But the real nice thing is at the end, they walk away from everything. You know, they don't have to clean boats. They don't have to, they just take their personal baggage and their vacation continues, you know. So you provide them everything but the blisters they're going to end up. Exactly. On their lily hands. <laughs> exactly. And it's not that easy in Grand Canyon to find a niche. And so it, it's, as friends, it's always been kind of a prideful thing to see your friends succeed and stuff. And they're, they're absolutely no exception. And we look forward to a visit with Rachel Schmidt. No, that'd be pretty cool. Scotty's gal. But uh, in light of the progression into, you know, your modern day business, um, I have a couple questions for you. And uh, this is more of a big perception from, you know, our lifestyles have been pretty blessed, even through our struggles. I mean, and I think Grand Canyon has made us a little bit more perceptive of some of the world elements around nature, around the environment, or you being a caver, Scotty, how delicate everything is in regards to impact. Have these things like completely led your life? Oh, it's pretty much everything. You know, I was into sports uh, growing up in high school, but it just didn't quite grab me as far as a passion. I enjoyed the competition. I enjoyed the athleticism of it, but it just didn't grab me. And yeah, starting to go rock climbing and starting to go caving and, you know, all the other sports, uh, outdoor sports, I should say. Um, it truly shaped me where I knew that that one form or another, there was going to be, you know, a path for my, uh, uh, profession, whatever that I really wanted to be a paid cave explorer, <laughs> but that didn't quite exist. That's even more ambitious than <laughs> a river runner. Yeah. And the problem with that is that you usually have to, you know, go to school and get a PhD and then you can make a good living, but then it turns more into an office job than it does a, you know, out in the, the field work stuff. So that kind of changed. And then when, uh, Hatch offered me that job, uh, as a river guide, knowing that I could work up through the ranks as well as my winter thing could, you know, still exist. That was when my little plan of whatever vagueness it was at the time started coming together. Yeah, and, game changer for sure. Yeah. And having two passions, you know, of Grand Canyon, of course, and then and then the tropics and southern Mexico. So that was pretty much, you know, in my early 20s. And that's what I think uh, led me to this, you know, lifestyle. Where, where we are. And that's why I say it's kind of a silly question, but it's one I want to ask everybody because, uh, you know, most of us in our circle, it's the same answer. Right. Now, the next question, and this is more of like the dreamer, the world, if I had a wish sort of question, is there any way we can get the natural environment, 
to be more of a framework for future society. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's there's a, a lot to one, be, but, but you know, I am, uh, I'm still confident and it's mostly some of these younger generation, not only groups, but individuals that are holding our modern day politicians and energy departments accountable for the climate change that's happening. So I do have a certain amount of faith uh, in that. As far as the end game, I, I don't know how that's going to work out. But there are, you know, it's it's pretty obviously a fact that our environment is so tied into our existence. It's just the people that have self-interest that don't agree with those facts. Um, but yeah, we're right on the threshold, depending on what you believe. Uh, we're right on that threshold of either trying to start turning some of our bad habits around or, uh, at least learn by some of the things that have gone wrong and try to make it better. But in a, in a very more personal way for me, you know, one way that I do it, and again, it's on a super small scale, but are through these private trips. And there is a good chance that private trips produce more uh, impact along the river corridor than commercial trips do. Our, and when you say impact, like literally f physical impact to that environment? Yeah, not necessarily trash or cutting trees down. But in a lot of these camps down in Grand Canyon, there are high water uh, areas that are, these are prehistoric or pre-dam high water areas that commercial passengers and guides very rarely ever go. And they're just kind of off limits. And private trips typically don't have those, not only commercial guides, but even chaperones that can. So our orientation up at Lee's Ferry and also uh, when we meet the groups prior to the trip is hardcore, leave no trace, respect this place. And we hammer it home with some firm words. Well, and I know you do. And I think it's sharing the parameters of impact. Right. Because most private people are good people. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think it's actually, you know, your service has really improved that private impact sector. I think it honestly has. And that, that that's nice that that's such a priority, it, like you say, in that orientation. Right. But also, it's a pretty good metaphor as far as the rest of the world, right? I mean, you, you look at... Uh, this finite impact, whether it's a cave or Grand Canyon. And I guess that's what my question was. Is there any way to get people more sensitive to those impacts? So that that's a great answer. And I mean, we could talk for the whole sure. hour on that. Now, to leave that just for the time being, and the the bottom line, though, not only is it education, but how important has adventure been to our lives? And my question to you is, if I'm not mistaken, our whole world has been around sharing the importance of adventure. Absolutely. And that's, you know, uh, and not 
any sort of selfish comments here, but that was a lot of our drive when we were, you know, down in Southern Mexico, Chiapas every winter was to educate people on, you know, this unique environment, uh, the rainforest in particular, because a lot of these people that were our clients had never been to a rainforest before. Um, and then educate them on the modern day and also the historic land practices that, you know, the uh, slash and burn practices for agriculture. And uh, as far as the adventure goes, I mean, it was as raw as it gets in our book, you know, out of a normal 10 day trip, we had spend like three nights in a hotel, but every other night was either camping. And sometimes there wasn't set itineraries for what we were going to do. And, um, we were able to sculpt the type of trips that we felt were on the cutting edge of adventure. But the, the other thing that we tapped on earlier, it's, you know, the profession of being a guide. It's one thing to be a great river runner, a great kayaker, a great rock climber, a great skier, but it's a whole nother skill set to share that experience with clientele and not only teach them, but share with them, educate them on the environment. I mean, that's what a guide is and guides are typically very social individuals. <laughs> and, you know, kind of in some of those trips we did in Mexico, I mean, we beat some people up during the day, you know, as far as extreme stuff. But if you had a nice warm sleeping bag and a tent and a nice meal uh, at the end of the day, it was like everyone woke up the next day and we're ready to go again. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, our time. It's never enough time. But I really appreciate it. I mean, I've always had such a fantastic friendship uh, with my guest here. And, uh, oh, golly, the older we get, the better it is. And the, let's continue on, bro. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. <laughs> Let a Grand Canyon River trip be your big adventure. Arizona River Runner's three-day, two-night trip gives you the enchantment of a western ranch experience, the thrill of a helicopter ride through millions of years of geology, and the rush of Colorado River Rapids. Take a weekend to unplug as the Arizona River Runner's talented guides show you the best of what the Grand Canyon has to offer. Visit RaftArizona.com to learn more. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bookner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts.